If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity. From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story. An Evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal Movement. Mormonism, Counterfeit Christianity. Turn or Burn. Jehovah's Witnesses, Deceived Deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website www.biblequery.org Once on the home page, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Our Father in heaven, we pause now and ask that you would give to us a clear mind, that you would take away the exigencies of our lives that so prevent us from focusing in on your word and things of eternal significance. I pray that you would enable us to set aside the worries and the woes of this day, the problems and troubles that we all carry in with us, that we might focus and have our attention completely upon your word, and that as we study together and consider these things that are occurring in our nation, indeed in this world, that we might be encouraged, and at the same time that we might be sobered as we reflect upon our duties as well as the joy of working in your kingdom. Pray, Lord, for freedom this evening, that thou would give us that kind of freedom. We pray, as always, Lord, that the master teacher would teach, draw us closer to you, take your word, drive it deep into our hearts, and set us more fully free than even we are. I thank you, Lord, for those who have come out tonight, and I pray your blessing upon them through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you could turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 28 this evening, I want to read the first 17 verses, which is the entire chapter of Jeremiah 28, and the reason for reading the entirety of it will become apparent as we move on into our study this evening. Jeremiah chapter 28. 
Now it came about in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priest and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Yet, Hear now this word, which I'm about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace when the word of the prophet shall come to pass then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have also given him the beast of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die, because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died 
in the same year in the seventh month. Jeremiah was told to wear a yoke around his neck to symbolize that the word of the Lord had come and that the nation would be under the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah, a prophet of Gibeon, stood up in the midst of the priests and the people, and he gave a word that he claimed to have been from the Lord. Jeremiah warns the people and Hananiah of the danger of a false prophecy. But Hananiah is quite certain of himself, and he symbolically breaks the yoke of Jeremiah in the presence of all the people, Hananiah said, Thus saith the Lord, quite certain of himself. The word of the Lord, however, came to Jeremiah after leaving the presence of Hananiah. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord. From this illustration, we notice that during the midst of turbulent times, many prophets will arise and speak for God. Many will say, I have a word from God. I have spoken with God, and God has told me something, and I'm here to tell you. Hananiah was such a man who stood up and said, These prophecies of mine are from God. Thus saith the Lord. So impressed was he that he had a word from God that he had no fear to speak not only in front of the people, but in front of the religious leaders of Israel. And this episode tells us that though somebody stands up and says they have come from God, and though they say they have a word from God, they can be deadly wrong. They can lead people astray. And they might ultimately be a counsel for rebellion against the very God that they are intending to serve with their professed message. False prophets ultimately are accursed for bringing a word which is not the word. And that's what my message is about this evening. Those who are coming and bringing a word that is not the word. The New Testament warns us to be careful of those who bring a word which is not the word. In short, the New Testament warns us of false gospels and apostasy. The term apostasy means moving away from a standard, departing from that which is sure, right, true, and strong. If you turn to Galatians chapter 1 with me, a passage most of you are very familiar with, we get a hint of this from the Apostle Paul and make a check mark in your mind, the number of times the word gospel is used in Galatians chapter 1. 
reading in verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel, contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. The Apostle Paul picks up the same theme of which we just read in Jeremiah, that there will be men who come, who will stand up, and who will say, I have a gospel. I have a message from God. I have something that I want to tell you about God and how God has spoken in these latter times. Turn forward in your Bible to 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John soberly warns us, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. We are to take careful note, not just to what is said about the person of Christ, but also the work and the message of Christ as well. For in reality, one can affirm the person of Christ insofar as his deity is concerned, insofar as his miraculous birth is concerned, insofar as his resurrection and ascension are concerned, that can be affirmed. And yet you can miss the essence of the gospel in the midst of affirming the person of Jesus Christ. For well, the gospel is composed not only of the reality and veracity of the person of Christ, but also the reality and veracity of the message of the person of Christ. And it's the message of the person that will determine whether or not
the person has been embraced. And so I take it that to deny the Son is not merely just to deny his deity, nor to deny his resurrection, nor to deny his ascension, nor to deny his return to earth, but to deny the Son can be accomplished thoroughly and completely by denying his message, denying that for which he has come to give us, to proclaim the message of his gospel. There are many who speak for God, and there were many who spoke for God during the times that these words were written. If you please turn to Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is very concerned about those who had a zeal for God, but yet could not affirm the message of God. Those who had a zeal for God but could not affirm the righteousness of God. Those who had a zeal for God but could not affirm the person and work of Jesus Christ. For he writes in Romans 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Speaking of Israel. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What I put together for you initially this evening is this. Hananiah stood up before priests, before the remnant of Israel, and said, I have a word from God, and this is it. God's going to do this, or God has done this. This is God's message. Jeremiah said, great, let's see if it comes true. You'll be judged according to the outcome. But God came to Jeremiah and said, uh-uh, this man does not speak for me. He has a bogus gospel. He has a false message. I cannot affirm what he is saying. Go to him and tell him, Hananiah, you do not speak for God, and furthermore, you have caused these people to believe a lie. It's not true. We come to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, I adjure you, I warn you, if anyone comes and preaches a gospel contrary to that which I have preached to you, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. I don't care if it's me or an angel from heaven. Don't embrace a false gospel. John writes, there are many who were among us, but they went out from us. They did not stay with us. They proved to be not of us. Gone. Many antichrists. And Paul submits that there are many who have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. I set the stage for you because I sincerely believe that the evangelical world is falling prey and embracing the lie by those who stand on the edge of apostasy, if not 
apostatizing already when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are at least three elements to apostasy. The first element is the embracing of a false gospel. Embracing, taking in that which is not true. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. This idea of deserting the gospel of Christ, the person of Christ, who cannot be separated from this message, and embracing another gospel is one aspect of apostatizing. The other aspect or element of apostatizing is the toleration of a false gospel. You may not embrace it. You may put some distance between yourself and that which is a false gospel, but you tolerate it. You allow it to happen. You sort of turn away and say, well, that's not me. That's what they're doing, and I'm not going to get involved. But you don't want to expose it. You don't want to rock a boat, or you don't want to upset, or you don't want to be accused of being divisive or unloving, or any other appellation that carries a negative connotation. We read these words in Revelation chapter 2, written to the church at Pergamum. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way tolerate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You are tolerating that which is foreign to the essence of the gospel. I have this against you. Not all of you are embracing a false gospel. You don't fall under the first indictment of what it means to apostatize, but you are tolerating a false gospel in your midst. And the third element of apostasy is the enduring of a false gospel. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, but I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you endure this beautifully. So sweetly, and of course, Paul is, borderline sarcastic at this point. I wish that you would endure me as well as you endure these false gospels, is what he is saying. I wish you had the toleration for me, the one who birthed you in Christ, that you have for these false gospels, for you are full of anecho, enduring the false teaching among you. These three elements 
lead to apostasy. They put you right on the edge, if not over the edge. The embracing of a false gospel, the toleration of a false gospel, and the enduring of a false gospel. And lines are being drawn nationwide, perhaps worldwide, on the issue of what is the gospel. And I assure you, you will be in this battle whether you want to be or not if you bear the name of Christ. You will have to speak up for to be silent is going to put you on the edge of enduring and tolerating. But the question then becomes, if there are some who are speaking saying they have a message from God, if there are some who are embracing a false gospel, if there are some who are enduring and saying they have a word from God, how do we measure it? How do we determine if their message is valid? Hopefully you're answering in your mind by the word of God, by the true gospel. It is true that those who try to identify counterfeit money spend most of their time scanning, gazing, and memorizing the real thing. If an FBI agent wants to detect a counterfeit $20 bill, he really has to be familiar with what a real $20 bill looks like. If you want to detect a false gospel and ensure that you are not tolerating a false gospel, you're going to have to know the gospel. What is a false gospel? It can only be answered by knowing the true gospel. I trust that most all of you in here have a grasp or understanding of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but in the event that you do not, let me lay forth for you some parameters that need to be explored and solidified in your mind. One essential of the true gospel, just one essential of the true gospel, perhaps the essential of all essentials, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. If justification is missed or misplaced or wrongly understood, then the gospel soon follows. So tonight, I want to focus on that one aspect of the heart of the matter, and that is justification. And I want to call attention to a citation that I have recently read in a book written by Dr. R.C. Sproul. And I'll read the citation, and then I'll quote the author afterwards. For the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. A right view of these things is not possible without a right understanding of justification, so that when justification falls, all true knowledge of the grace of God in human life falls with it. And then, as Luther said, the church itself falls. A society like the Church of Rome, which is committed by its official creed to pervert the doctrine of justification, has sentenced itself to a distorted understanding of salvation at every point 
nor can these distortions ever be corrected till the Roman doctrine of justification is put right. And something similar happens when Protestants let the thought of justification drop out of their minds. The true knowledge of salvation drops out with it and cannot be restored till the truth of justification is back in its proper place. When Atlas falls, everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down to Signed, James Packer. Quoted by R.C. Sproul in his book, Faith Alone. Later on in his book, Dr. Sproul sadly laments that Atlas has shrugged. For Dr. J.I. Packer, as much as I love his writing, as much as I have embraced the wonder of his ability to exposit the scriptures and bring forth the lovely truths of the great Protestant Reformation, has in this day and age departed from an affirmation of that truth and endured a false view of justification upon which by his own testimony everything rests. We'll talk more a little bit later on Dr. Packer and what is going on in the evangelical world today. But if justification is essential to the gospel. And without a proper view of justification, the gospel is lost. Then what is essential to justification? That's the next question. Here are the essentials of justification as brought to us by the Apostle Paul, as affirmed by every believing theologian from the second century on through the great Protestant Reformation. Justification is first and foremost a forensic term used with reference to the law of God. It is not a term that references a moral transformation of a sinner. No, it is a term that references an acquittal before the judgment bar of God. It is in relationship to God's holy law that we stand or fall, acquitted or condemned. And justification at heart, the entire dikaio word grouping as used in the New Testament, represents this kernel of thought, that when we stand before a holy God, and if he should mark iniquities, who could stand? The Reformers knew that no man could stand. Therefore, they needed to be justified. They needed to be acquitted on the basis of another's righteousness to satisfy God's law. Justification has nothing to do with moral renewal or sanctification. It has everything to do with the judgment of God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ for a verdict of acquittal standing before God's holy law. It is a legal declaration. Justification when properly understood as the heart of salvation, has its ground, has its entire ground 
the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not the renewed heart of one transformed by the grace of God. Or to put it another way, as John Murray, the great Westminster theologian, used to say, he would say, ladies and gentlemen, close your eyes and picture God. Now, in closing your eyes, picture man, sinful, depraved, decrepit, sin-laden, infested, having no hope for righteousness before God's holy law. And then picture God justifying that man. And ask yourself this one question. What is the righteousness contemplated by God in the verdict of justification? Therein is the heart of justification, which is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you say anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ as the ground of righteousness contemplated by God when he declares a sinner to be acquitted from the bar of his judgment, then you have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. And perhaps... The clarion sound of the ringing bell of justification throughout this land has been muffled because there is not enough preaching of sinful man before a holy and righteous God. Surely, if the law of God were understood by the wickedness of man, he would beg for another's righteousness. Justification. God justifies the ungodly. He quits them. He says, in effect, the law will not harm you, for another has stood in your place, and I accept his righteousness in your stead. And he justifies on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness of Christ is gathered in. It is grasped. It is taken to us by faith and faith alone. For faith gets us into Christ, and his righteousness is the ground of our justification. The Reformers considered the essence of the gospel to be justification, by faith alone. They consider the essence of justification to be the legal declaration of acquittal based solely on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Solely, utterly, totally. In fact, they, they put their entire life on the line for this. I mean, they marched up to Rome and said, you've missed it. Here is the gospel. And they risked their lives for the very essence of the very gospel that they took with them to their graves. Eustitia alien. The alien righteousness of Christ must be ours, said Calvin, Luther, Deza, Knox, William Carey, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
It never ends, the parade of God's preachers and teachers. An alien righteousness must be yours. And it is through faith alone. Listen to John Calvin. A man will be justified by faith when, excluded from the righteousness of works, he by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ and clothed in it appears in the sight of God, not as a sinner, but as righteous. Thus, we simply interpret justification as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor, as if we were righteous. And we say that this justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. The gospel in its essence. To embrace, tolerate, or endure a gospel that does not have as its core the essence of a right understanding of justification is to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it continues in the professing Christian community, those who do such are to be considered as apostate, those who are incorrectable, those who upon hearing this say no to it, or treat it as another view, or say, well, that's fine for you, but we don't have quite a strict understanding of this as you may have. There are room for other views. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no other view. There are no other views. There is no other gospel. Paul knew no other gospel. I know no other gospel. The entire weight of the Reformation rests upon this one point. What is the righteousness contemplated by God in the verdict of justification? It is either the righteousness of Christ or it's your own for justification. There is no middle ground. And we dare not say there's hope for one lest we formulate a new gospel. Now, we believe the Roman Catholic religion declared itself to be apostate at the Council of Trent when it embraced a gospel which denied irreformably the essence of the true gospel by affirming a false view of justification and anathematizing all those who affirmed a correct view. The Council of Trent defined justification in terms absolutely contrary to those I have just submitted to you. And they anathematized all those who would embrace such a view. Among the myriads of problems within the Roman Catholic system, the chief failure is a failure to understand the basics of the gospel of the justification of a sinner before the judgment throne of God. Justification by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. And this failure can hardly be represented as a mere difference between the Roman Catholic community and Christianity. It is not a mere difference. It is rather a fatal difference that separates a community of those embracing a religion from the community of saints, those embracing the righteousness of Christ for their justification by faith and through faith alone. The Council of Trent on Justification, Vatican II on Indulgences, Vatican I on Papal Infallibility, 
the New Catholic Catechism, all of it. The list goes on and on. Baptismal regeneration, eating a literal Jesus in the Mass, adoration and veneration of Mary, sacramental salvation, etc., etc., etc. All that comes from Rome through Rome and by Rome has at heart, fundamentally, a misunderstanding of the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ insofar as justification is concerned. And that is the battlefield, that's the battleground, and that's the article upon which the church stands or falls, and nothing has changed except, except, except those who want to lay claim to the gospel as being Christians and who want to merge the evangelical world with the religion of Rome. There are two groups of people operating across the nation today. There are those who leave evangelicalism and embrace Romanism, and some of them are heavy hitters. Thomas Howard, Scott Hahn, Jerry Maddox, Bob Sungenis, Scott Butler. Let me tell you about these men. Scott Hahn was number one in his class at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He formed the Calvinist Club in Hamilton, Massachusetts. Staunch Reformed Calvinist. Converted to Roman Catholicism some years ago, left the Presbyterian Church, and now is their number one apologist. His tapes and his books are readily available throughout the land. You cannot go to a conference without hearing about Scott Hahn and his tape series on the Book of Romans. Jerry Matatex, one of his good friends, has formed an organization in Baltimore, Maryland, dedicated to the preaching and teaching of the Roman Catholic religion. Jerry Matatex was a former Presbyterian pastor and teacher at a Presbyterian seminary in the south southeast. His organization, Biblical Foundations, goes from one end of the country, now internationally, debating evangelical pastors and putting them in their place on the issue of justification. Widely received, widely respected, their number one traveling apologist. Scott Butler was former director for Campus Crusade for Christ in Southern California. Bob Sungenis has written a book entitled Surprised by the Truth, which is a compilation of former evangelicals who have embraced the Roman Catholic religion. He, too, has formed an organization and is writing a book with another Romanist entitled Not by Faith Alone. Perhaps it is to be expected that some would depart from the faith and declare their defection with boldness. This is not new to Scripture. For there are some who have embraced Christianity or have seemingly been a part of the body of Christ, for they were with us, but they went out from us, as I read. So perhaps in the case of Scott Hahn, Jerry Matatex, Bob Sungenis, and some of these others, it is not surprising. By the way, as far as Jerry Matatex is concerned, it was at a monastery in Berlin, New Jersey, that Jerry and I squared off against each other on this very issue of justification by faith alone. He invited me to debate him 
on the issue, are we saved by faith alone? And I took the affirmative, and he took the denial in the debate. Problem was, there were about 130 rabid Roman Catholics in the Roman Catholic monastery in which we debated. Needless to say, it was a long evening, but I wish all of you could have been there. I wish that you could have heard Mr. Matatix defend the Council of Trent. Then you could have known the experience of stepping back into the 16th or 17th century. And then afterwards to have been surrounded by 70 Roman Catholics all speaking at once, pummeling you with questions. I went to a conference at Notre Dame University last month. The name of the conference was Converting America to the Roman Catholic Religion. The guest speakers were so certain that they were the only representatives of God on earth that I couldn't help but thinking that I had fallen into a nest of Hananias. And they were rabid. We had a debate scheduled on the perpetual virginity of Mary that evening, and they called it off, and I talked with the director of the conference, and I said, why did you call this off? I mean, I would have come anyway. I can't resist those kinds of conferences. I was the only Protestant there, and I sat there with my Bible in my lap, taking notes, handing out my book. <laughs> Didn't go too far. The director of the conference came up to me, and he said, Mr. Zins, a heretic such as you cannot be suffered at a conference like this. We had to cancel the debate for fear of your safety and well-being. We did not feel that you would have made it out of here without bodily harm had you debated against the Blessed Virgin Mary. I said, touch a nerve, did I? <laughs> but that nerve... That nerve really is justification. The only reason Mary is so venerated is because she's an add-on. Everything's an add-on. Once Christ is not all. Once his righteousness is not enough, everything's an add-on, as is Mary. So as shocking as it may be to have these brilliant Presbyterian pastors and teachers and seminary students converting to the Roman Catholic religion and writing against the reformers, we need not be disturbed too much. For we will stand up against them and, if necessary, debate them right into the ground. What concerns me is about what I'm here for this evening. What shall we say of those who openly endorse the Roman Catholic religion as an alternative worshiping community and seek political and religious alliance with them. What do we do with those who have not joined Rome but fully endorse Rome and at the same time claim evangelical Christianity and at the same time teach across the airwaves of America, either through radio or television, and write books, many books, I assure you are being written today on this issue. What do we do with the likes of Chuck Colson, 
who has written, among other things, this latest book, Evangelicals and Catholics, toward a common mission together. What do we do with the likes of Pat Robertson, who stood on the platform and joined the Pontiff's Mass, Central Park, New York, the last papal visit, and endorsed Pope John Paul II as a brother in Christ? What do we do with Jack Van Empey out of Royal Oak, Michigan, who has produced a video wherein he extols the virtue of Pope John Paul II as a brother in Christ? What do we do with the likes of Dr. Bill Bright, director of Campus Crusade for Christ, who has openly endorsed the Evangelicals and Catholics Together statement written by Charles Colson and Richard John Newhouse, what do we do with Hank Hanegraaff, who has in so many ways avoided the issue and in other ways openly endorsed Romanism in his radio programs and in his writings? What shall we do with Ralph McKenzie and Norman Geisler, who have written a 550-page book on Roman Catholicism and Evangelicals and laboriously reviewed the teaching of Rome and concluded that it just doesn't really matter. They are differences, but they are not fatal. What do we do with all the signers of the ECT statement? How do we handle them? What do we do with Billy Graham? who, according to Mark Knoll, in Colson's latest book, has an open history of his efforts at ecumenizing the evangelical world back toward Rome. Billy Graham of Southern Fundamentalist Extraction and Nativist Evangelical Education early in his evangelistic career enjoyed less than cordial relations with Catholics. During the 1950s, Catholic officials in South America and the Philippines forbade their co-religionists to attend his meetings. In the same years, local priests and bishops in the United States also often discouraged attendance at Graham Crusades. During the presidential election of 1960, Graham only just succeeded in muting his enthusiasm for Richard Nixon and again just barely in hiding his apprehensions about a democratic regime that would include not only a Catholic president but also a Catholic majority leader in the Senate. However, very soon thereafter, Graham began to work at improved relations with Catholics. His efforts were unusually successful. Catholics now make up a considerable portion of those who attend his meetings, record decisions for Christ, and watch the Crusades on television. Tangible evidence of Graham's transcendence of interconfessional antagonisms multiplied rapidly from the late 60s. In 1977, he was granted permission to hold a crusade in one of American Catholicism's most hallowed shrines, the football stadium at the University of Notre Dame. In 1978, he became the first Protestant leader to be entertained by the abbot of the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Poland. In 1981, he sought 
and was granted an audience at the Vatican by Pope John Paul II, who short years before, as Cardinal Wojtyla, had made it possible for Graham to preach in Catholic churches in Poland without prejudice. The danger in America today is among us. As hard as it was to go to lunch at a cafeteria near South Bend, Indiana and have a Roman Catholic fall on his knees and place his hands on my shoulder and begin praying to Mary for my salvation, as hard as that was for me to endure, I understood where that guy was coming from. I understood where he stood. I could have a conversation with him on the basis of his absolute dogmatic adherence to the Roman Catholic religion. And I could embrace a dialogue with him gleefully and open the scriptures and say, now look here with this Mary business. But what do you do with Billy Graham? What do you do with these fellas? Dr. Bright, in signing the ECT statement, went one step further. He now has on staff Campus Crusade workers who are Roman Catholics raising money and preaching the Lord knows what gospel out there. What are they telling people? I know what they're telling people. Love Jesus. Worship in your own way. Do what you really want to do as long as you believe in God and Jesus. That's the bottom line. And they're preaching a God of absolute and total love that loves and accepts you right where you're at, no matter what you do and no matter how you worship. And essentially, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being strangled by those from within the camp. That's why R.C. Sproul and D. James Kennedy and John MacArthur went on television in Tennessee and did a series of videos with John Ankenberg to discuss the ECT statement. I highly recommend that video series because it exposes the real issues of what's going on here. But folks, there is something in the air and there's something in the water. There is something going on that I cannot explain other than supernatural hardness and supernatural blindness. After marveling at the fact that D. James Kennedy would sit there on stage with R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and clearly enunciate the differences between the Roman Catholic religion and Christianity, zeroing in on the heart of the gospel and the heart of justification, we just went to war with our crisis pregnancy center up in mid-Vermont because they're hiring Roman Catholics on staff and they are doing it with evangelical money. And their volunteers are Roman Catholic. So we wrote the letter to the director and said, what gives here? What gospel will a Roman Catholic volunteer tell somebody who has an interest in spiritual things and wants to carry her baby to term? Tell us, please, what gospel will that Roman Catholic person give? They sent us back a care net letter 
written by National Care Net Association, which is an umbrella organization that feeds into all the crisis pregnancy centers throughout the nation. And right smack dab in the middle, we are not prejudicial towards Roman Catholic religion, we welcome volunteers. Great. Who's on the board of care? I want to know. D. James Kennedy. Why? You see, there's something wrong with the consistency of the implications of the gospel of those who call themselves Christians in America today. Now, I can understand if a man is caught in immorality. He has a weak moment. I can understand sin of any magnitude that an evangelical may do in denying Christ for the moment. We've all read Psalm 51 and understand the life of David. But can I be a Christian and consistently deny the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone, and deny the heart of justification, which is the righteousness of Christ imputed for our justification? Can I do that? That's my question. And why can't our leaders be consistent? That's my question. Why do we have to have a care net that enrolls Roman Catholic volunteers? Do you have a crisis pregnancy center here in the Austin area? Is it supported by evangelical money, which I call God's money? So if you are funding it as a good steward of God's money, are they enrolling Roman Catholic volunteers to give the gospel to those who come in to take the pregnancy test? And what is that Roman Catholic volunteer telling these people who come in? Herein is the gospel. What? I'm really interested to know. Justification by faith alone and the finished Christ, work of Christ alone? You'll never hear it. So why are they there? I want to know. I'm here tonight to raise the issue with you. I'm here tonight to raise the issue of the fact that this is going on before our very eyes. And we have written letters to all of these organizations, to all of these people, with the exception of Jack Van Empey. He's on our list. And generally speaking, the response that has come back to us is that we do not slice the theological baloney that thin. Well, somebody better start slicing the theological baloney that thin. Otherwise, that's all it is, is baloney. It is not the gospel of Christ. And we are at a crisis point in this nation with our high-profile public leaders from top down. I am sickened by the response of Dallas Theological Seminary to the ECT statement. And the response of the Presbyterian Church in America is worse. Why? Why? What is going on here? In my estimation, we're losing the gospel. In my estimation, we are apostatizing. We are moving away from the gospel of Jesus Christ rapidly. Hang on to your seats nationally for this country. We go underground next for the judgment may be coming. And the first judgment is no clear gospel. No clear preaching or teaching of it. 
nationally. Praise God for small independent churches and men who are committed to the scriptures and have heard and received and are willing to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As far as national figures, I can't think of any other than praise God for John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. We lost a good brother in the Lord with John Gerstner, who died recently. But where are the Gerstners and the future Sprouls? Will God raise them up or will he just let us go? I don't know. But these men have stood up, and they look good, and they sound good, and they're full of language that can be taken in ambiguous terminologies, but nevertheless, when all is cut away, a false gospel has crept in, and the embracing and enduring of it has crept in, and we need to stop it, and we need to speak out against it. Listen to Luther's comments on those who were troubling the Galatians. This is out of his commentary on the book of Galatians from chapter 1. For if the false apostles had not possessed outstanding gifts, great authority, and the appearance of holiness, and if they had not claimed to be the ministers of Christ, pupils of the apostles, and sincere preachers of the gospel, they could not so easily have undermined the authority of Paul and made an impression on the Galatians. What was Luther saying? They're good. They are real good. And I beg of you to have a discerning ear when you listen for the gospel. For we believe the gospel has been compromised. We believe that those who are doing so unrepentant should be shunned and chastised. We believe that all Christian funds should be diverted away from those individuals and institutions which endorse unity with Rome. We believe the response coming out of some major institutions are weak and need to be rewritten in light of the gospel. We believe that we need to affirm the gospel in its essence along with all other creeds of Christendom all over again. We believe a failure to do so spells the death of the gospel in America. There are those, and I'll close with this, who wish to trivialize the Reformation by attributing the fatal differences merely to the historic climate as though man has changed and the gospel has somehow been raised above the din of the culture. They tend to revise history and seek to say the Reformation was merely a mistake of communication. Last fall I went to Northern Ireland and I stood on a podium and debated a Roman Catholic priest from a large diocese in Belfast. It was a terrible night. Not because the priest was willing to do battle. It was because he was unwilling to do battle. He told me that he loved me and wanted to embrace me as a brother in Christ and told me that we were both saying the same thing, essentially, and that if I would just but get myself out of the Reformation and understand that the language back then was a product of the culture, 
that I could see that we are essentially saying the same thing. To which I responded, good, then you won't baptize your babies anymore and we can throw out the mass and we can throw those statues of Mary out and I'll join you in telling your congregation there's no such thing as purgatory. Okay? And we'll write a letter to the Pope. Okay? And he went on the BBC the next day after hugging me on the stage and calling me a brother in Christ. He went on the BBC, British Broadcasting Company's radio over there. And he said, I believe that American, Mr. Zins, has some fundamental problems that probably stem from his youth. I'm telling you, there's nothing worse than being loved to death on a stage and then afterwards being written off as some sort of aberration who really doesn't understand the issues. Give me the folks in South Bend that wanted to burn me at the stake. They know what they're doing and they're proud of it. The Catholic priest in Belfast knows what he's doing and he's not proud of it. He's sneaking his way around it. Both types are invading. And I adjure you to stand strong. I really do. I'm so pleased that uh, this body is here, that you're meeting hundreds like you across the nation, small church, committed elders, deacons, pastors. And I think that you can be encouraged that God's word has not changed. Justification has not changed. Salvation has not changed. And though the airwaves be full of focus on the family, focus on interaction, focus on healing, focus upon improved temperaments, focus upon keeping promises, focus upon doing well, improving yourself, focus on focus. <laughs> though the nation be filled with this, stay on track. Focus on the gospel. Do not be afraid to preach and teach this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell men how dead they are, having no hope without God, and present to them the offer of salvation based upon the righteousness of another. Stay strong. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we indeed are in mixed-up times full of turmoil and frustration. But your word stands. It has not changed. It will not change. And Lord, we pray for those who in their zeal to bring about political alliances, in their zeal to fight off the onslaught of Eastern mystics, and the Muslim religion and secular humanism have embraced the ugly snake of Egypt rather than your glorious and wondrous gospel. We pray that they would come to their senses and that they would repent of the wickedness that they have brought upon your gospel through the accommodation of strange gospels, the enduring and the embracing and the toleration of that which is not true. For they have caused many to believe a lie 
and they have created confusion. And I pray, Lord, that you would raise up an army of prophets to speak boldly and that you would energize your people to stand firm. We thank thee, O Lord, for what you have revealed to us, for our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We cling to nothing else. We put all of our eggs in that basket. We forsake our own righteousness that we might be found in him. That is your gospel, Lord, as I see it, as I understand it, as I embrace it. I have no righteousness of my own. I dare not claim that which you have produced in me by way of sanctification for acceptance before you. I will not hold on to anything other than Christ and his righteousness. Grant us the strength to stand, O Lord, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.